This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Was the 1980s the best decade for role-playing? Grab your polyhedral dice and let's play. Once again, it's time for the 80s. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture. From a couple of idiots, my name's Will, and joining me as always is my friend and my co-host, Ray. The summer just keeps rolling on and on. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't... I don't I, I haven't figured it out yet. I feel almost like I haven't started enjoying summer yet. Like I'm still waiting for it. Well, you better start enjoying it because oh. it's almost over. <laughs> you know, and I think part of it for me is, you know, well, we can talk about this in news in a minute, but part of it's that summer experience of going to see some movies, which has been taken from us so far. Before we get started, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform uh, you're listening to us right now. And also, this is the last week to nominate the Idiots for a Podcast of the Year Award. That's it. You have the to the end of the of July, and that's it. And then we're done. We got it. We got it. Get in there or not. So please visit our Facebook page to find out how to do that. It's real simple. So today on the show, we're going to be talking about Dungeons and Dragons in the 1980s. Our experiences, our recollections, some controversies, and a little bit later, we're going to be speaking with. The living embodiment of Dungeons and Dragons, Mr. Ernie Gary Gygax Jr. Yeah, that one. But before all of that, let's get caught up on 80s news. All right, so, yeah, the duck I was just mentioning a moment ago, part of my, you know, I've, I've talked about this. We've talked about this on too many episodes. We have to get to a new year where we cannot talk about it anymore. Uh, but one of the things that I am missing most for my summer here is... Seeing movies in the movie theater and having popcorn. So we've been waiting for this canary in the coal mine, the bellwether. They've, everybody's been waiting for Christopher Nolan's Tenet to come out. Other film productions, because they said, that's going to be the one that's going to show us how successful a movie can be in this current environment. Well, Warner Brothers just removed Tenet from its release schedule altogether. It's just gone. <laughs> so this thing that was supposed to you know, let us show how movies can be successful... Uh, which was originally dis- scheduled to debut on seven, uh, July 17th, was pushed back to July 31st, then August 12th, and now it's unclear when it now will uh, welcome audiences. But we expect that the studios are going to make an announcement uh, imminently, at least according to Variety.com. So what you can anticipate, right, well, as soon as I heard that news, I thought, well, Tenet's fine. I mean, I like Christopher Nolan movies fine enough. But there's a slew of other movies we want to see that we know Something's going to happen as a result because this yeah. one is gone. Some somebody's got to make the jump here. Somebody's got to release these things and just go. You want to see them go to the drive-in? I mean, I don't know how they can push these things back any farther. Well, we just learned that movies are getting pushed back farther, including Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. So that film was supposed to open December 2020 just a few months after getting pushed back. And now that one's not coming out till next summer, 2021. And they're saying the reason why is because there's nothing like experiencing a film in the theater. So they're willing to wait. Yeah. The theater, there's nothing like seeing it in the theater, but at this point, if they don't start releasing some of this stuff to either streaming or drive-ins, they're going to be so far behind that it it isn't going to make any difference. Right. You're going to have 50 movies come out in 2021 on the same day. (laughs) It's going to be the best day ever. It's going to be pandemonium. (laughs) Uh, It's going to be like when you're kids and you just sneak from one theater to one next. I guess you can't do that if you have to buy that, pick out the seats ahead of time. Hmm. Well, you'll be wearing a mask so you can sneak into whatever you want. (laughs) I'll just keep changing the mask. (laughs) So maybe a bit of good news then, to your point, is that uh, amongst this, among these movies that are now being rescheduled and shuffled because of uh, the continued concern about opening movie theaters, is Bill and Ted Face the Music. Now, at first I thought, hey, this is probably going to hear some bad news, but the good news is we actually have a release date for Bill and Ted, and it's not too far off. 
So from Deadline.com, they write, uh, despite AMC theaters saying that they'd reopen in mid to late August this morning, so, so AMC has also pushed back their opening date from July, uh, Orion made the sudden announcement that they're taking their prequel Bill and Ted Face to Music out in a select theatrical PVOD strategy. So in addition to getting a new trailer in the last couple of days, which if you haven't seen it, check it out, it's awesome. We actually know that Bill and Ted is going to be coming out Labor Day weekend in theaters that are open, that they've deemed can have it, and you can just stream it right in your house. That is the smartest move ever because it's going to be the number one movie for months. Right. Because it's the only <laughs> new movie. <laughs> so no matter what it does, you release it to theaters and drive-ins and streaming, mm-hmm. it's going to dominate the end of this year. There's no reason it can't be successful. I don't know what the numbers were for these other films that have done something like this, like Trolls. But I know we watched it the weekend it came out, Trolls. Yeah. And, hey, you, it, we'll be there. We'll watch it. Yep. And I don't know if you noticed, when they do this, they, they do these, I don't know if you've done one of these yet, this uh, on demand, when they do it on the opening weekend. Trolls, actually, I believe, was different. I think Trolls, you could, hmm, maybe one of, the, one of these films that they did this, you could buy it that weekend and just own it for the 20 bucks. But others that do this, you just you're renting it for twenty dollars. Well, <sighs> it's still cheaper than going to a theater for a family of four. Yeah, well, that's the the big thing there. They've been talking about for a while now is is why not just release it on all forms at the same time? Yeah, uh, every platform gets it: the theater, homes, streaming, physical copies. They yeah. all come out the same day and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's where we're headed. Hey, as as consumers, we're for it. The biggest challenge is the movie theaters, who, who I think after Trolls, you know, started. Um, uh, I think Troll. I think I can't remember which movie theater. Maybe it was the, the the organization that represents all movie theaters said to Universal, "Fine, you did this thing where you released Trolls, uh, uh, you know, straight to streaming. We're not showing any more Universal films in theaters ever." <laughs> you know, they did that. I think they backtracked from that well, sense. But good luck with that. Here's what I know: if a movie's really good. And it's something you want to see in a theater. You'll see it in a theater. Yep. If it were, if you were on the wishy washy, you weren't going to see it in a theater anyway. So, yep. you know, you're not losing anything. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, movie theaters are afraid that you know it's going to bastardize their business, and they make most of their business off the popcorn and, and soda. So not and not from the ticket sales. So they're thinking, hey, if you can watch it at home, you're not coming to my place. But yeah, I, I would if, if if given the choice, I would see Bill and Ted in a theater. I would see yeah. Top Gun in the theater. Uh, yep. Most films like that. Now, Trolls I'd probably see at home, but, you know, yeah, some of them, you, some of them, you got to see them on that giant screen, surround sound, et cetera. Yeah, there's a lot of people that are not going to go to the theater no matter what you give them, so. So, anyway, I look forward to that. We've got, now we know when we're going to definitely see it, so that's very exciting. For now. And I'm not going to make any more announcements or teasing any announcements about talking to anybody in connection with Bill and Ted because I'm afraid of that John Schneider effect. Yeah, we don't want that to happen again. If we say something out loud and announce it before it's actually been recorded, right? It's, it's, it's bad juju. All right, so that, okay. So there you go. Well, that's all we'll say about that, which is too yeah. much. All right, so hey, in other 80s news, and you sent this to me, and I think your email said something like, holy shit, it might happen, or something like that. I I believe that's what I said. Uh, And the story is, and this is from Cosmic Book News, which we've used as a source before. The headline reads, George Lucas saving Star Wars. Kathleen Kennedy leaving for J.J. Abrams. Now I just realize it sounds like she's going to go date J.J. Abrams or something. So the story is, this is another rumor now, which is the second second or third, I guess, big rumor we've gotten uh, in in connection with uh, the shakeup over at Lucasfilm. And this one, again, comes from someone who has a YouTube channel uh, called Overlord DVD YouTube. Um, And his name is Doomcock. Yeah, Doomcock coming through again with some cool info. Did you just want to say Doomcock coming through? Yeah. Because we're like 12. So Doomcock says it is most assuredly not BS... He believes that his, according to his sources, that in fact, Kathleen Kennedy is on the way out. She is leaving Lucasfilm to go become a part of either a a, a part of Bad Robot itself, which is J.J. Abrams' company, or maybe a spinoff or offshoot of Bad Robot, which I think is a a, a company that's going to focus on female-led productions. 
So we last heard from from Duke Cock, who was, was telling us a little bit about this uh, idea uh, that they may retcon the first, I'm sorry, the last three Star Wars movies and make it that they had an, happened on another timeline. Mm-hmm. But now they're taking things a step further. According to Doomcock, George Lucas himself is coming to head up Lucasfilm in some capacity or another. And George Lucas's demands to do that included that he gets to make his own sequel trilogy. Ray cannot contain his smile on his face. I am so happy because I wanted this and I called this. This was the way to save it. It's crazy. It's crazy, but I'm super pumped because I called this. I was like, this is how you save it. Bring the boy back. Let him do his job. Yeah, I I don't. Favreau's in. Yeah. He's the head of the movies. So him and George would be the ones handling this. Yeah. Yeah, what you're alluding to, there's, according to this, uh, again, these rumors, the current proposal is that George Lucas would be the head of Lucasfilm, it's according to Doomcock. John Favreau would be put in charge of developing original content for Disney+, Plus, Star Wars content, oh, that's that what is. It is. And a third unnamed individual would be put in charge of movie production at Lucasfilm, and all these people would ultimately uh, be working under the authority of George Lucas. This person who wrote Cosmic Book News article says, could the third person be... Marvel head, Kevin Feige. That would be awesome if that's what happened. Now, see, I'd be encouraged by that. He's done an amazing job over at Marvel Films, so, hmm. Yeah, I I think this writes the ship. Hmm. But, again, it's crazy. I'm not for this because, look, he can make make three crummy movies, too. You know, look, I've said this before. I'm not a fan of the prequels. So, we're going to get more prequel nonsense? I don't want to see it. You get ready to eat some crow, buddy. Let's just be done. This is coming. I don't want to see microscopic Jedis. You're going to be regretting everything you say right now. All right. And you're going to be like, these were amazing. I'm so glad this happened. I'm, I'm glad we're recording this. But it is a shame now that, you know, we already lost Carrie Fisher. So we can't even, she can't even be worked into this story. I feel terrible for Harrison Ford, who's got to be like, holy f***. Are you kidding me? I got to do this I gotta, again? <laughs> I got to come back. I, you have, he gets I had to you- die. He gets to die twice. <laughs> this is why I had you kill me. I'm assuming he's going to just make them kill him in the opening scene. <laughs> I think what happens is him and Chewie come running across screen and just some random stormtrooper just mm-hmm. blasts him. And he's like, he goes down and that's just it. And they just move on. Suddenly stormtroopers have good aim. Yeah. Or well, Adat steps on them both. Yeah. So George Lucas had some other conditions. In addition to making a sequel trilogy, he also said that, uh, again, this is a rumor. Number two was that he gets full creative power until he decides to hand it off. Condition number three being Kathleen Kennedy is gone, which, again, according to the rumor, is the case. And condition number four being Disney agrees to never, ever (laughs) mess with the original trilogy, leaving it untouched. Now, this one ticks me off because one of my hopes in Disney (laughs) buying Lucasfilm was that they would release cleaned up digital versions of the original trilogy as unaltered by George Lucas. Not the special edition nonsense that we got now. The, the old ones. I don't want Jabba in New Hope. I don't, you know, all this kind of wacky stuff. But we'll never see those now. Well, if you believe George, those don't exist, so. Well, yes, except we know it's a lie, but yeah. Hey, I believe him. I don't believe Uncle George. Uncle George so, will love you, but... So uh, George is going to have to go back and do some some magic, and then poof, you'll have it. It's coming. Relax. So we'll Do- get him. And, and Doomcock says that in response to George's conditions, uh, Disney res- uh, Disney said, so when do you want to start? Yep, here's your pile of money. Slide it across the table. And can you also slide over a pile for Harrison Ford? Yeah. So basically they said, hey, what they pay him, like $4 billion for Star Wars? Was that like the total? I think it was eight, actually. But yeah, it was something like that. So they're like, hey, here's another billion. Come back. It'd be funny. They have George Lucas come back and they're like, we're going to need that. Remember the money we gave you? (laughs) Yeah. We're going to need that back. All right. Hey, in other 80s news, this story comes to us from the Washington Post. Amid a pandemic, D&D finds itself at a inflection point. And the gist of this article is a number of different things. But um, one of the things that leaps out in just the first few paragraphs is that Hey, when you're stuck at home, why not play D&D? Prior to the pandemic, people are already getting together, playing in groups, and some of them using electronic media for being able to play together or playing remotely, etc. and so on. Well, now, hey, now that we're stuck at homes, 
it's created an even greater opportunity for people to be able to connect across, you know, various distances, geographies, topographies even, and play a role-playing game, including Dungeons & Dragons. And there's a number of different platforms that uh, allow to do this. Uh, We've seen an increase in the number of players pretty significant over the last five years. And now that we've got folks moving to these uh, electronic platforms to be able to join one another in a session, we're getting word from some of these companies that they're having problems handling the volume. So, and you'll recognize these names because these are some of the platforms that we used to use when we would play, uh, including Fantasy Grounds and Roll20. Nolan Jones, a managing partner and co-founder of Roll20, Roll20 uh, and that's a, it allows you folks to share a map and have their characters on screen, et cetera, and so forth, says, we would have had significant server downtime if we hadn't had a couple of days where we saw more Italian users than U.S. users joining the site and thought, this is serious. Uh, so now folks are scrambling to be able to make accommodations to host a, a number of new users. Fantasy Grounds, a company I mentioned, uh, another uh, virtual tabletop service, says that they saw numbers skyrocket. Quote, we saw an initial burst of new users at nearly 15 times our normal rate. End quote. That's from Doug Davison, president of Smiteworks, which uh, oversees Fantasy Grounds. You know, this is timely for us, right? In a moment, we're going to be talking about how popular it was for, uh, for in the 1980s. And what is this, 30 years later? And here we are again. Yeah, this is um, this is the, the cycle. Hmm. Um, people are actually enjoying it again. And, and it's not that whole stigma of the nerd culture. Hmm. Yeah, right. Or, or the satanic culture. <laughs> or, or whatever stigma you want to attach to the game. All right. Well, hey, you know, we can talk more about that in just a second here and say yeah. that's the end of 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, so hey, today we're going to be talking about Dungeons and Dragons in the 1980s. A little bit later, we're going to be joined by our guest, Ernie, Gary, Gygax, Jr. But before we do that, I wanted to give some shout outs to some of our folks, our supporters, our listeners. So we put out a call on Facebook. If you're willing to let us thank you on the air, let us know. And if you're, you know, if you've got a, our intention was if you had a particularly tricky name to pronounce, give us, uh, you know, a way to pronounce it. Of course, you know, this opened the door a bunch of jokesters. Yep. Yeah. The trolls came flowing through on this one. But we do ask for permission because, hey, even though you're on our Facebook page, and if you're not, you should go there already. You may not want your name called out on a podcast, but this, these folks don't mind. Hey, we're grateful for everybody, even if you didn't uh, like or comment here. But here's folks that are willing to be, be thanked. Ziggy Lakowski, uh, Mitchell McElroy, Torben. Oh, boy. This is why you're supposed to do it, because you're an expert at pronouncing names. I don't have the list today. Torben. I'll just see Torben. Craig Coletta. Mikey Boatwright. Tony Jones. Chris Sardella. Larry McComas. Abby and Keith Miller. Now, and Abby and Keith are our new friends. And they have that um, that thing they do. What is that? Um... Yeah. A.K.A. AKA, our yeah. 80s Life, yeah. So our new friends over at uh, AKA Our 80s Life, you should check them out. They've got a YouTube channel. Go over there or go find their Facebook and give them a like, follow. They go, they're, they're you know, they're doing what, they're living the life, right? This is what we should be doing, right? Journeying to these different locations. Yeah, they just did uh, recently uh, The Outsider's House or something mm-hmm. I saw. Yes. yes. So I'm like, why aren't we doing that? Right, we got to start. And then yeah. uh, we just shared their video where they go to the filming locations for Bill and Ted, which is was filmed in Phoenix, Arizona, as a stand-in for San Dimas, California. So that's Abby and Keith Miller, Paul Murphy, Lynn Dove, Bart Arnold, Mike Wilson, Claudia Portia Tapia, Mark Rabinowitz, Bill Ware, Nathan Wallace, Ma- Margaret Riley, Brian Pickard, David Wingard, Yayoi Jankowski. I want to know if I got that one right. Uh, John- Highly doubtful. <laughs> John Cook, Claudia Butcher Franco, Joe Indy. Jennifer Isom, Tony Rafino, Nancy Shrek, John McElvogue, Vaughn Baskin. And Vaughn says you pronounce his name V-A-U-G-H-N. That's a lot to say in a pronunciation. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say Vaughn. Uh, Kathy Burke, Stacy Lanigan. And finally, last but not least, we want to thank uh, John Henderson, who started as a fan on the show and, and now works with the show, who's been helping us create content, uh, including uh, making posts uh, on the Facebook page. Yep. Welcome aboard, Mr. Henderson. Yes. Once you're in, you can never leave. (laughs) Yeah. Blood in, blood out. (laughs) All right. So, hey, let's talk about Dungeons and Dragons. 
Yes. So we could spend, and someday we will, we could spend a whole episode talking about the history of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, you know, and it's so much related to that. So many things that uh, came about as a result of Dungeons and Dragons. But today we're going to focus mostly on our recollections of our early RPG experience in the 1980s. And maybe if we have time, we'll touch a little bit on the satanic panic too. But we can spend an episode on that too. And you know what? And we really, we really should. Hey, well, pretty much we could do an entire podcast just based around Dungeons and Dragons. So, okay. So, what do you need to know if you don't know about Dungeons and Dragons? And maybe it's because you've been living in a cave. Uh, and maybe if you're living in a cave, you're like really into Dungeons and Dragons. You know, you're like LARPing or something. But in short, know that Dungeons and Dragons is an RPG. Uh, it's the grandfather of fantasy role-playing games. Uh, a real short abridged history is that it, it was ultimately the result of a lot of different games and game mechanics uh, over many years that were provided, you know, and developed by a lot of people. But ultimately, Dungeons & Dragons was, you know, pulls all these things together and was created by Gary Gygax and, and Dave Arneson, something that began in the 70s and really uh, became super popular in the 1980s when Ray and I first discovered it. And for more information about this, you should read the great uh, book, the really wonderful book, Empire of Imagination, Gary Gygax and the Birth of Dungeons and Dragons by Michael Whitwer. It's fantastic. It's easy to read. He dramatizes the true story of uh, Gary Gygax and the development of Dungeons and Dragons and the rise and fall of TSR. Okay, enough about that. I recall when I, f I think, first started learning about Dungeons and Dragons. Well, why don't you tell me when, how, how did you come uh, to know about Dungeons and Dragons and about when? All right, here we go. 1983. I need that music like... Um, my friend Terry's brother went off to college mm. and left him all his books and dice and said, I'm off to college to sleep with women. Here's these, this game for you and your friends. <laughs> so immediately, Terry jumped on his bike and rode to my house with all this Yeah, And we set up on the concrete. At that time, I lived in a house that was the garage and the house were separated by a concrete little, you know, area. Pad, yeah. And I can distinctly tell you, it was late summer. The smell of fresh cut grass was in the air. There was a slight breeze. Wow. We sat down. We opened it up. The winds were changing. And um, Keep on the Borderlands was in there. And the Isle of Dread was in there. And we started with Keep. And it was like magic. The second we started playing this game, we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> I was just going to ask. You, you didn't mention having a player's manual or monster manual? Well, no, no. Because, well, we had the basic set from the late oh, 70s. Okay. But we also had the expert set that went with it. So I, I don't know if we had the expert set yet. But we had the basic set. We had the, the two modules. And he played Dungeon Master first. And the second we started playing this game, we knew we were hooked. I mean, it was over. And to this day, if you give me a summer day when there's fre fresh cut grass, mm -hmm. the, the right temperature and that slight breeze, it immediately will remind me of that wow. day. Hmm. That's a good memory. So wait, my first question is, so wait, Terry's friend... His brother, John. Oh, Terry's brother, John. He didn't think that taking Dungeons and Dragons to college would be like a chick magnet? No, he knew immediately at that time that, that he it, wanted to get laid. That it wouldn't be. And, okay. and he knew mm. that if he was rolling around campus playing Dungeons and Dragons, he wasn't going to get laid. That's pretty, you know, advanced, I guess, to be able to enjoy it as a <laughs> young person. And But no, <laughs> you know, girls aren't going to dig it. Well... I can honestly say I don't think it's ever got me laid. So I yeah, think John yeah. was, I think he was right. He's on to something there. So when you play just the two of you, are you being a DM and a player? Like one of you is doing both? Um, at that time, no. He, on that first day, he ran the game. Okay. He read enough to understand how to run it. And I played one character. I see. And that was our first experience mm -hmm. with the game. Yeah. And we would, we would suck the rest of our friends into playing yeah. after that. So. So did you have a recurring game then at some point after that? Oh, yeah. I've played pretty much steady up until recently, yeah. since 1983. Sheesh. Oh, well, you know, you, you played in my game when I was yes. running it here. Oh, yes, of course. Um, but you started, but you already, and you developed a regular game uh, even at that time after you, shortly after you learned, learned it for the first oh, time. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, the second we learned how to play, yep. we didn't stop. We played straight through mm. till all the way through high school. Yeah. I mean, we didn't care. We loved the game, so mm. didn't matter to us if people thought it was stupid or nothing. So yeah. But nineteen eighty three, yeah, Dungeons and Dragons was king. Yes, I agree. I had a similar story. Now it's funny that you say it that way because what I recall and, and probably my, my friend Craig is gonna be like, That's not it but it was something <laughs> like it's it's interesting too, right? Like the thing that you you remember all these details about first playing it, like you know, with such specificity. Um, and for me, and and for me, I you know, again, I'm saying I have a sort of similar experience, but this is not one of the things I remember with as great a, great a details. I remember other things in my life, so it's curious how you know certain things sort of you know get coded in our minds. But I remember it was Craig who had a friend who was like a you know a who was an older guy. Who I don't know he he moved away maybe he went to college but he also you know bequeathed to Craig some books and I don't even know if we had a module in there I think he I think he had like the player's handbook and the monster manual I don't know if we had a campaign or anything so this is why things are getting fuzzy <laughs> but it was around the same time like 1983 because I remember we kind of scrimped and saved which probably meant I was taking money out of my dad's you know <laughs> sock drawer. Sock drawer. You know, slowly over a period of time <laughs> until I had enough money that this is what I remember Craig and I going to uh, Toys R Us and buying the basic, the red box basic yeah. set, you know, with the dragon on the cover. Um, and I still have my dice, you know, that I still have my dice from that yeah. set. So I think that's the first time we had a campaign, was whatever camp, I don't even remember what campaign was in there. And then shortly after that, yeah, we played, you know, I wouldn't, we probably didn't play with the regularity that you played. And I don't remember who else played with us. I remember our friend Louie played with us. And I do remember, the, I guess the one memory I have, like much like your, it's not as romantic as your <laughs> summer breeze and the <laughs> fresh cut grass, but we decided we were going to play for 24 hours straight. And it was going to be in my parents' basement because that was a place we could all go. And my parents, you know, were cool about stuff like that. And I don't even know if the basement, eventually my dad finished part of the basement, but I don't know if it was even finished at the time, this room, maybe it was, but we went, we also saved or, or borrowed money to go to the local grocery store and we walked there, and, like, you know, we got like a couple of bottles of soda, bags of chips, you know, it's kind of the same way you do it when yeah. you're an adult, <laughs> minus the alcohol, much. yeah, because yeah. we were what, like 12 years old or something like that, bring it to the house and that's it, we stayed in the basement for 24 hours, we didn't sleep until it wasn't possible to stay awake any longer. <laughs> and I remember the sink down in the basement because there wasn't a bathroom. That became the toilet. <laughs> um, it's probably Louie who first decided that's how it would be and then everyone just followed. Uh, that's great. Um, but I was always the DM. I loved being the DM. That was fun for me. I think I also made the maps though too. Because you, you remember, you, they didn't, you'd have to have grid paper. Yeah. Kind of do it yourself. You didn't have to. But I wanted to write my own campaigns after that. I wanted to get Dragon Magazine. I had all these ambitions tied to Dungeons and Dragons after that. None of them amounted to anything, but um, <laughs> it definitely it tied into the great sense of adventure that we had already as kids. Yeah, another great thing um, in the early days, once we got to high school, my friends could drive because they're a couple of years older. We would go to the mall yeah. because there was this Chinese place that sold like um, swords and uh, <laughs> trinkets. Oh, yeah. But they, for some reason, unbeknownst to any of us, and I, I don't even know how we figured this out, they sold Dungeons & Dragons dice. Oh, wow. By individually. So yeah. you could pick them out, what colors, and it was like, why does this place, because you had to ask them for them. Hmm. Can I see the dice? Mm -hmm. And they would pull them out from behind the counter, put them up there in the case, mm -hmm. and you could go through it and pick out what you wanted. But, it made no sense, and I don't even know how we found out they had them, but it was crazy. Yeah, I can't think of... The only place around us to get anything like that was Toys R Us, and at that time, like, right, you couldn't get any other dice unless you bought a set, one of the yeah. basic sets or whatever they had after that. Um, yeah, it's not like it is now. We just hop online and just order a hundred of them at a time, because at this point, I think I have, what what I tell you, 650 dice? Yeah. My Something goodness. like that. He's not lying. You know, you got to take a picture I, of like. I'm that not even making that up. Have or it is. Yeah, it's. I have over 600 dice. Easy. It is a. It is. It is weird. Like I wouldn't have imagined if you had told me, "Hey, once you start playing D and D, you're just going to want to buy new dice all the time." 
I wouldn't, I would have thought, no, I'm not a kind of person who likes to collect things, you know, but no, yeah, there's that phenomenon. I don't know why that is. Yeah. Yeah. There's times I buy them a hundred at a pop. Yeah. It's weird, but it's so rewarding. It's bizarre. It's the closest I've come to hoarding is buying dice. And I don't have even nearly a fraction of what you have. <laughs> if I have a hundred dice, I'd be surprised. <laughs> well, that's what I thought too. When people would ask me, how many dice do you have? And I go, I don't know, about 300. And then I sat down and counted them. I was like, wow. You were like 301, 300. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm only halfway there. What have I done? So, of course, much like anything else we enjoyed in the 1980s, the adults came along and tried to ruin it for us. They did. We talked about this before uh, on our episode when we spoke with Michael Sweet of Striper uh, about the satanic panic uh, and sort of these uprising of these organizations that tried to you know, take out heavy metal music. And we talked about how it encompassed larger media too, including horror films. But Dungeons and Dragons, of course, was like a prime target. It's easy. You got magic people in there and <laughs> strange creatures and monsters and spells. Oh, no. Um, so, yeah, the satanic, eventually, ta- satanic Panic eventually came for uh, Dungeons and Dragons too. Um, the same Christian groups that rose up against, you know, again, the music that we loved, et cetera, started writing letters, you know, in droves to uh, TSR. Uh, talk to uh, our guest later about that. Um, to, to, to what? I guess to influence change, to get them to shut down. They, they, yeah. There were some books that came out during that period of time uh, that tried to get kids and uh, parents educated about the dangers of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, including, and I found this one was interesting. This one, uh, this was written in 1987 by a gentleman named Peter Lathart, I'll say, a Christian response to Dungeons and Dragons. And in there, I thought it was funny, he, he recommends that instead of playing Dungeons and Dragons, children should read J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great idea. Thanks for that help. <laughs> and he suggests some other books like C.S. Lewis, who was a known Christian writer, and The Brothers Grimm. And he says that the distinction between Tolkien... Come on, keep this in mind, folks. You know who Tolkien is. The distinction is, sure, you've got goblins and orcs and witches and sorcerers in those stories, but the witches and sorcerers aren't the heroes of those stories. Mm. To which I say, Gandalf! <laughs> and, and like probably dozens of other people. I mean, come on. Once again, much like heavy metal, the uh, aspect of them saying, Dungeons & Dragons is bad for you, don't do it. Just yeah. made me want to do it even more. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Christian organizations, for pushing me even farther into that world. It's like, wait a second. I could learn how to do real spells. Oh, we tried. Yeah? You yeah. tried oh, spells yeah. that were in, uh, in the books? Um, no, actually, well, side note, um, when I was in like <laughs> eighth grade, we got our hands on an actual occult spell book. Oh. So we were in lunch trying to cast a spell to make the floor open up and eat our teacher. <laughs> Wait a second. Is this, first of all, <laughs> where does one <laughs> obtain a, a spell, like a legitimate spell book? The library, the I, school library? I don't know where it came from, but I was the one who was like, I'll, I'll read it. Let, mm-hmm. Let's see if this works. Yep. So the inflection or the words I said must've been wrong because yep. it didn't work. So my second question is in the spell book, is there a spell like to open the ground up type of spell? Some kind? Yeah, that's what oh. it said. Make the ground open up and eat somebody, basically. Oh, so we figured, well, we don't like the lunch monitor, so yeah, see if we can get the floor to eat that that dude. So speaking of that, I also found in in, in many of these things I learned in a book that we we spoke about once before, which is a great source for everything about the Satanic Panic. It's called Satanic Panic: Pop Cultural Paranoia in the 1980s. Uh, you can look it up. You can buy it online. It's really cool. It talks about the satanic panic in the context of all this various media throughout the 1980s, including uh, Dungeons and Dragons. And in, in this book, they reference another colorful character who, uh, among the many th- claims he made, was that he knew that Dungeons and Dragons was real because he, I guess he also lived in uh, the Lake Geneva area of Wisconsin where the, the game was born. And Folks from TSR would come to him and his wife because they knew that he was uh, a sor- had been a sorcerer in the Church of Satan or something like that to ask him if the spells they were writing for D and D were legitimate enough. <laughs> sure, I'm sure that's that awesome. really happened. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I don't know. That's about it. Anything else to know? 
it's it's impossible for us to squeeze this into one. So at some point, we just have to stop and say, this is all we could do for this one. Because like I said, we could do a weekly podcast on Dungeons and & Dragons. And, and, and we will, right? We said we will do that one day. We could probably do at least a few episodes on that. And we will. It'll be fun. Uh, like we said, we just wanted to mostly focus on our recollections here. Even with the satanic panic, there's so much to go into, including mazes and monsters. And the real story behind the news story that inspired that book and the film that came from that book. Uh, and so we'll do that. But for now, uh, but for now, sit tight, uh, because in a moment, we'll be right back with our guest, Mr. Ernie Gary Gygax Jr. guest today is just like us. He also started playing RPGs in his youth. The difference, he ran a character in the very first tabletop sessions of what would ultimately come to be known as Dungeons and Dragons. Son of the legendary Gary Gygax, the creator of the world-renowned fantasy RPG, our guest worked his way from shipping clerk of TSR to vice president where among his many fantastical responsibilities included creating monster geomorphs and working on production of the beloved Saturday morning cartoon. A gamer for life, our guest continues to run games at conventions including GaryCon and GameholeCon. And he continues to create his own adventures today, like his recent Memorial Tomb. His latest project, however, brings him literally closer to home. Assisted by museum owner and developer Justin Lanasa and a slew of other friends, our guest is restoring the home that was the first headquarters of TSR Games in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. To follow the progress of that historic site, visit tsrmuseum.com. Please welcome to the show, Ernie Gygax Jr. Hello, Will. Hello, Ray. So so where do we find you exactly? This Obviously, you're on location here. We are. In the entrance of the Dungeon Hobby Shop. Of wow. the T- well, it was the Dungeon Hobby Shop when I was running it. You're kidding. Back in the 70s and up to before we moved. I know that you guys are primarily 80s, but this building not only was the start of TSR when it came to actually their first business right. address, but also um, it's been made into a museum honoring all the works and classical materials of TSR in the past. That is amazing. What's neat is that it's going to be returned to the same way it looked back in like 73. Wow. This was TSR. Wow. So I was just reading Mike Whitworth's book. Oh, Empire of Imagination. Excellent book. And so I know TSR was a few places. And you know, the book, as you know, the book opens with telling the story of your father when uh, TSR removes him. And Mike Whitworth dramatizes it nicely where he's sort of taking a tour of the city and he describes going past one of the places where they had uh, TSR originally. Is this, and he said, now it's people live there. Is this the building? Yeah, that, that is exactly correct. Wow. That's, that is, that is cool. 723 Williams Street. Williams Street, right. Very good. But otherwise, there's been a few changes. Uh, and, and so how, but otherwise, this is still home. And how is Justin going to restore it? Are you, are you working from old photos? Do you have photos from that time, Ernie? Or, or? Well, I, they have my brain. Really? Yes. Wow. So, so yes, things might be a little bit more skewed to the way I'd like them, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but believe me, I was the, the most important feature I had here was fighting with the ladies to try to keep the air conditioning cool enough. <laughs> <laughs> so in, and in seven, 73 though, you're still, uh, you're still in, in school. In high school. Right? Well, yeah. I mean, well, but this place was like that in 73 mm. and then we were, I'm trying to remember the exact date we picked it up. Um, it would have been much later than that, but not not more than two years. And I worked here as a junior in high school after school. I took the bus a couple times and to drop off, and I was working on the monster and treasure list, right. as well yeah. as dungeon geomorphs, right, and doing shipping out of what had been the kitchen way back in the early days. And you know, for us, imagining being involved early on. You know, so many years later, it seems like well, that would be so exciting, so thrilling to work at one of the places where Dungeons and Dragons began. More or less, though, what you know, between you and the shipping clerk job and, and pulling the monsters, does it just seem like a job or does it seem as magical and as exciting as we would imagine it would be? Well, it, it varied because, of course, punching in, I actually had to use a clock 
<laughs> and all that and punching out. So, but at the same time, I paid to have cable put in here and brought my own TV because, because after that I got at the new job is running the store. Well, I first worked with Tom Wom, Terry Koontz, and then Tom Wom. And I thought it was funny because Tom Wom, who's a great game designer, is absolutely has no idea of time at all. So <laughs> when we would open at 11 o'clock in the morning, there'd be people waiting here, and Tom wouldn't answer his phone and was on the computer, an early version of computer or something, or whatever he had, or just playing with games somewhere. And he would not get here till lots of times noon and other people would have to open the store for him. So my dad's <laughs> to have an older guy teach me how to have <laughs> responsibility was, was not a, was not good. It was a failure. <laughs> <laughs> was it surreal for you to be back at the house for the first time? Well, I've, I've led a, a tour or two and lots of fans because sometimes I will get together with people and hold the game and then I'll give them a part of it as a tour of the old TSR. I'll go around from place to place and whatever, as much as we can in a vehicle. <laughs> right. Anyway, you're, you're more interested. Well, what do you want to do? Do you want to know about there'll be Dungeons and Dragons entertainment in the eighties? That was yeah. huge. Well, yeah, I thought, well, I thought we'd back up a little bit and just, you know, uh, many folks probably don't. Uh, well, well, first of all, you, you know, you along with Rob Kuntz and your sister, you know, were the early folks playing Dungeons and Dragons. And it's, it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, you and Ray and I, we all started playing D&D around the same time in our lives as young men. You were playing the first, you know, campaigns as your father was developing it. Could you tell it was something special or, or did it seem like just any well, other game that your father was brainstorming? He did a lot of great things. Alexander the Great was a lot of fun, the board game. Mm, uh, right. that was first with Guidon Games and then went on to be done by Avalon Hill. And Dunkirk, we only played like once. And that was lopsided, but that's kind of what Dunkirk was. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's not a good time to be French <laughs> or Belgian. <laughs> <laughs> had you played had you played any of the other uh war games i played he... all my, everything that dad ever made i cut my teeth on a on a ss panzer division tank you know in a stalingrad game as a little kid reaching mm. up onto the card table that my dad was playing <laughs> with mike mcgita okay <laughs> and i never stopped playing games from there and some of the simple games started with stratego oh yeah and things like that and dad beat me a lot but he would show me what i'd done wrong and then at some point, dad was having trouble, if ever, beating me at games. So that'd be fun. Though he did beat me at the last chess game we played, even though I had an advantage. So even he always let me know that. Yeah. <laughs> the last time we played, I beat you. Winning was very important for him. Yeah. It's, it's, it's and again, reading a lot of this, you know, an empire of imagination to see how you know, the game was really a long gestating game that came through this process, you know, that all of the things that your father worked on s somehow tied in ultimately to what became, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, along with, you know, with uh, contributions by Dave Arneson and Arneson and uh, some other folks. Well, Dave Arneson and my dad were, you know, communicating a lot through the mail before. And it wasn't only Dave. There were several other people's dad was communicating with. And um, it's none of these people worked in a vacuum. <laughs> they were all exchanging ideas freely trying to encourage growth in something that was stagnant mm. and needed anything to try to get together to play with people. My mm. dad's went out of his way because he created Gen Con. At first, it wasn't going to be Gen Con. It was just he did this at our house. And my mother had such a fit with, you know, people <laughs> me taking measuring tapes over the child crawling on the floor and all this <laughs> that. We had to rent a place and start Gen Con. Yeah. My mother is responsible for the birth of Gen Con, but it wasn't. <laughs> so sometimes negative energy can get a positive result. <laughs> you, uh, your, your character is tensor. Do, yeah. Do you, that's do, one of my characters. The very first one. Do you ever pull him out and play him still? No, no, he was retired, but I, I, and I don't even have the exact, it would all be from memory again. Yep. Yeah. I, I had a shopping list of goodies. But a lot of them were <laughs> lots of items. But I mean, now I was very greedy. And I guess <laughs> I really, I just love magic items. And I love how I could then figure out ways to use these items to gain more cool things. And it just becomes a ever escalating study. <laughs> and, and, a, and then it's, at some point, 
the work of art is going up a level. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and that can be the way my dad had it. Sometimes with Rob and I, it would be like, okay, we're going to go somewhere. But if first pick is going to be, if there's only a magic item and treasure, one guy is going to get the magic item and a lot less experience. The other guy gets all this treasure and a bunch of experience, but doesn't get that cool item. Yep. And, and it's really hard, but most of the time I probably would have gone for the item, you know, <laughs> rather than. <laughs> yeah. I just think it's also really cool that uh, tensors like floating disc and the other spells were in the book. So um, that's what always reminds me of the character. It's like, oh, yeah. Well, Kona Cold is really the spell that I created. Right. Yeah. The others are were made by Tensor's transformation and, and all that because I would do anything I could to um, somehow keep this going. And when you were playing as, <laughs> as Tenzer in these early games, is, and you said you were trying to do anything, is, you, is, your, is your father as the first DM essentially adjusting the rule set based on what he sees you, My you what you're doing to balance out what characters are capable of doing? Yes, he did that a lot. This was our shipping department. That is so excellent. This is where 10,000 players' handbooks or something else would be going through into the basement or whatever we needed or to a warehouse. Mm -hmm. We had brown paper that we would tear off to wrap the brown box D&D games and tape them. We didn't put them in cardboard (laughs) at first. If you ordered those $20,000 brown box now? (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) You were really risking a lot of damage potential. In the in the brown boxes, you're talking about those fake wood grain, the first ones. <laughs> yes, yes, wow. the, the original one thousand, and then the next one thousand D and D. Wow, original D and Ds. But I put together probably five hundred of those two thousand and licked the labels myself. <laughs> the dirty DNA on your on your collector's edition. <laughs> Folks have Gygax DNA, and they don't even know it. That's worth something there. <laughs> Uh, As you're putting the museum together, are are you looking to try to uh, obtain some of these rare items? Yes. I have a few treasures that have been given to me off and on, but it's going to be hard to peel them off my walls, but we'll see. This is a mighty (laughs) damn good cause, Mm. but I'm not, I'm not sitting in lots of things. I had a fire in 2013. Mm -hmm. So that destroyed a lot of my, my goodies. And also, just growing up and chasing women and stuff. That's beyond, <laughs> you know, it, it's so many of these guys that I know that I'm talking to, especially even with other podcasts. Yeah. And they say, yeah, I stopped playing, you know, games for about a decade. Another guy said, yeah, it was about 20 years. And all of a sudden I'm back in it. I wonder why I ever stopped. Yeah. And I said, well, there's a simple reason. It was hormones. <laughs> you were you were flushed with reproductive hormone <laughs> and now you're evening out as you age. Ernie <laughs> Gygax took a break to, for women. <laughs> what hope did we yeah. have? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did. I did. I took it like a decade off. So. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, reading reading Empire of Imagination again, and if, if anyone hasn't read it, you really should check it out. It's really cool. It's really well done. I, I guess did um, Mike Witwer reach out to you to uh, for information about some of the stories and to verify some of the things that happened? He and I spent um, several days on things. I'm, I'm his primary source. Okay. And he also talked to my mother just over the phone. Yeah. And then he went searching with, with many other people's from Mike Menard on around um, that he could find. Right. And he, he did an exhaustive search. Michael Whitware is fantastic. And then the art book after that that he did with his brother and several other people was fantastic. It is fascinating that, and he points this out early on, that there really isn't a, 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 a good or well-done biography of your family, um, which is what he was trying to do. And I'm surprised this hasn't been a film yet. I mean, it's such an important thing that your father created that, you know, has affected so many things after. I don't know that you could even imagine um that we don't, we haven't there seen is a lot screen. of talk about that, yeah. and we just want to get my dad out there because every year people are forgetting about just all these incredible things that he helped do. He was just one of, he was just a, a kid, a nerd who, you know, kind of a heavy set boy with round thick glasses, you know? <laughs> and he became somebody who has helped, I would say, tens of millions at least of people play games and probably several hundred thousand people with difficulty find purpose and uh, gain some self-worth and the ability to communicate. And the whole story of Dungeons and Dragons is such a, you know, a family story. So so many families involved, including your own. And 
unfortunately, some some of those relationships, you know, led to some less uh, fortunate things for the f- future of TSR and your family. But uh, <laughs> well, I'm not overly pleased with Wizards of the Coast um, trying to say that everything from the past is kind of evil. But we will still leave it there for you because we believe it's history, mm. but we condemn it all in, <laughs> in bold yeah. letters. <laughs> yeah, don't don't get me started on uh, how they treated all that stuff because they did they did the the, the AD and D wrong in my opinion. Well, but I like that people are coming to it, and that there's a lot of girls coming. I mean, D and D had more girls than war games ever did, and that's what I was raised with. Right. I remember <laughs> being 13 years old and really being proud of my peach fuzz on the top of my lip. And then I went to a gaming convention and there was a girl my age that had a gamer girl that had a better mustache than I did. <laughs> Times have changed a lot. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully but, but, yes. Now I, you know, there's interesting chainmail bikinis sometimes or, yes. or Princess Leia outfits and all kinds of things. Yes. And, um, so I've got a, a stepson now who's married to an ex chainmail bikini girl from a from a Gen Con booth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's a story of love at first sight. So, there's a daughter yeah. <laughs> and, and a marriage. <laughs> if you want to get, if you want to talk some 1980s stuff, um, I'm interested in um, the decision to go with the basic and expert books and the AD and D books and keep them separate. Um, Whose idea was that? Because that was brilliant. Well, my dad didn't want to dumb down the game. Right. He still wanted to keep it fun. But the common man in areas that doesn't have your interests and goes to Toys R Us Mm. will pick this up and then they'll look at it and go, oh, my God, this looks harder than Monopoly. (laughs) And put it on the shelves and it never come out of the closet until there's a rummage sale or something like that. Um, so that was why they tried to make the, the basic version version, which I never played. And I mean, what's wonderful is that now, especially a lot of these game guilds and quotes, kids that were 13 to 15 and whatever that were playing in my game now are bringing their children to play and they're bringing both sons and daughters to play in my game. It's <laughs> the first <Right>. edition. <laughs> it's oh. wonderful. Yeah, I uh, I stayed with first edition until 2000. I I ignored second edition. It wasn't until my my group actually forced me to change for third, and I fought tooth and nail, Ernie. I really did. And now you're back to first edition. Yeah, well, you know, I don't like fifth. So well, three point five was just about as much fun as playing Diablo or something like that. It's fun, but it's yeah, it's it, it's basic it have, computer type. It doesn't have the same flavor that first edition had. Or AD, no. whatever you want to call it. They, they really succeeded in making a tabletop game into a computer game. Kind of. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the 80s, Ray and I were talking about the satanic panic of the 80s, how everything you know that we that young people liked, there, there was some angle our parents were finding to say it was associated with the devil. Hard rock music, horror movies. Dungeons and Dragons was one of those things that we were warned we shouldn't do. Absolutely. I... Oh, we saw all kinds of hate mail, but it wasn't, it wasn't a lot. And some of it was chain written, like all at the same time, a dump mm. as somebody's minister would get up on the pulpit right. and say, we've got the demon's address here, you know, <laughs> put the vipers out of business. Or I don't know. I'm just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It was probably just like that. I would imagine it was just like that for you. It was like you guys and Kiss were getting all these letters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The advantage that, that gentlemen like Kiss had is that they were, you know, the girls just thought they were incredible. Where in school, now there's all kinds of, when I see these these girls and say, well, you're famous now or whatever else, they would hardly even give me a second look in, in high school. <laughs> <laughs> well, who's laughing now? Literally, Ernie's laughing right now. So, you know, you, you're commenting about, uh, we're talking about the 80s versus today. As far as uh, D and D goes, I moved. Um, I was here from 1980 to 83, and then in 83 to 85, I went out to Beverly Hills to work um, as the entertainment director right. for Dungeons and Dragons Entertainment. So I worked on the cartoon. Oh, I worked on also a, a placemat for Orange Julius, which which you'll enjoy. 
because I had it completed and ready to turn in. And then the CEO said, oh, my God, we found out that you guys might have something to do with demons and things like this. We can't, we can't have that, 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 that kitty's place mad at our place of business. <sighs> what, what really made it hard to get a D&D movie made was not the panic at all because uh, the studios were clamoring for it. Yep. It was um, that the money uh, Dragon Slayer from Disney almost put Disney out of business back right. then. Now they, they look like a mega conglomerate, but yep. they had bad times. And oh, during the Satanic Panic, I had um, NBC News come to the Dungeon Hobby Shop when I was running it. And um, it was the national news lady, one of the main reporters, but they were using a local team out of Channel 4 Milwaukee. And and she, she, at some point, as they're all setting up things, she kills me to try a little bit. And, no, you know, she's a pretty little thing and whatever. And she puts her arm around me and says, oh, darling, could you, could you really give me some of the, the true story? <laughs> 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 and, you know, I'm, uh, I'm uh, 21 years old. So she's, she's saying, okay, he's primed. You know, I'll open this young guy up. <laughs> You're young and impressionable. <laughs> What's it like to see all of these celebrities now coming out, in all these different shows playing some version of role playing game? You know, some of them, uh, and obviously the the love that so many folks have now for this this game that started when you were a kid. Well, before it would be seen as a negative attribute. So even if you had, even if you loved games and things like this, if you were somehow in the public eye, you would avoid the stain of, you know, cause that could limit, it could be like a weight added to you when you're trying to do a swim or a run or something. And now all of a sudden some people have come out and said, well, you know, against, I know it's hard for you to believe and people like Steve Colbert. Right. And then they started pouring out and you get your tough guys. Um, you know, Vin Diesel was right. like, you know, so what? <laughs> but, <laughs> but he was, he's playing on his image. Yeah. I enjoyed watching HBO in the past. So I'm getting like it less and less. But when they had that, that neat series that not only had Joe in it, but it also had um, the pretty gal that my brother's getting to play with once in a while on online gaming. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. True um, blood. And Joe is a werewolf. Yes. <laughs> True blood, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks like we watched a lot of the same stuff. I'm, <laughs> Probably, I'm, yeah. I'm sure we could talk yeah. about some Game of Thrones things that we wanted to spend a lot of time. <laughs> another, another person who has your dad to thank for his, you know, whole franchise. Um, yep. So when you play games today, are you you sticking with paper, or is there any new, any of the new technology that you rely on? No, I'm 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 paper. I'm paper pencil, and people sitting around the tables, sometimes outside. Um, I, I do. Uh, what the? What's your favorite monster? Mm-hmm. I created the Water Weird, and that was done in the same building, and that was um, done downstairs when I was doing the Monster and Treasure list because you had to create a new monster to fill it. And then basically all sorts of things would get modified by how I use them. And then other people's too, because I think Rob or my dad even abused the um, magic jar spell so bad. <laughs> uh, it was in Rob's game. And he, there was a whole room of like Gorgons, like 10 Gorgons in a room. And my dad just would go into one Gorgon after another and have it, you know, fighting with the other ones until there was only one left and he ran it as hard as he could into the wall and then came over and finished off. It was from being a magic user when he was playing Morgenkind. And I was like, okay, dad, so this is broken. I can't allow this kind of crap. You know, even though I did it, uh, he found his own weakness. And so now it became all these life elements around you. You don't can't tell which thing is which, but you can go into which element, A, B, or C, you know, which door, you're going to try to take over and you might be jumping in your own characters or something. <laughs> I, I can't let you go before I ask you what your favorite module was. I um, generally don't run modules except at conventions. Um, and, um, well, of course I've been involved with, um, I've done lots of my own material, which is now coming out on the Kickstarter, the, the Memorial Tomb. Right. And all the people that were involved with that have um, beta versions of it. And they're sending in, oh, here's a typo here. Or you said, refer to this chart. That's not the right place. That kind of thing. Mm. And then they're, 
they're going to either get, um, um, you know, just online only or paper versions shortly. And Trollords has helped come and, and save, save us from the difficulties of having, um, I have an artist in British Columbia named Benoit Poir, who is mm-hmm. just the best cartographer with his hands. He hardly does anything on the computer. It's all free hands. And he draws these incredible levels. And then because of the lost city of Gaxmore, which is my thing that I made when I was working at the game guild back in 1999 and 2000, that now is Alyssa Farden, and she is like the best cartographer with a computer. And she, what was amazing is that she read my module and found two areas and different and, and other things that weren't as they should have been by my descriptions in the previous versions maps. <laughs> she repaired them. That's how good this girl is, <laughs> as well as doing a, a work of art. So, <laughs> um, in '86, I came back and worked on SNT Magazine here in town. And while my dad and, and Lorraine were fighting for the company, I was still working for TSR, and I helped catch SNT Magazine up two issues. There were four behind at the time with John Pickens at the helm because he was a, a guy who believed in absolute quality and, and deadlines don't matter because you have to do it right. <laughs> what's, it, what's it like continuing to work there after Lorraine ousted your dad? Uh, well, he was still fighting it in court. Okay. And so she was awfully friendly that way. But when my dad hired away from her, Tim Mohan, to work for the new Infinities corporation um, with his projects. Then that the next day she told uh, Mike Cook, who was my superior, he was, uh, cause I'd been brought down to, you know, like assistant vice president or something. And there's a lot of titles that have gone up and down <laughs> depending <laughs> who's in power. <laughs> right. Then I was, I was let go without, without any fault because of being a guy gap. Mm. And so they gave me a little over five grand and let me keep my company car and said, hit, hit the road and we'll buy your stock anytime you want to full value. Mm. There was a huge party that night over at our local pub and lots of things happened. It'll all be fun someday in my book. Yes. <laughs> we, we can't wait for this book. This book's going to be amazing. It's going to be fun. The ideas are gelling. Ernie, we are so grateful for your time today, but even more than that, we're so grateful for your and your family, starting with your your dad, of course, contribution to something we loved in the 1980s and continue to love today and has inspired and inspired generations of other people to create other things that we also are clearly offshoots of, of Dungeons and & Dragons and and creating all the genres that we just have enjoyed. And we are so grateful that uh, it, it was part of our youths in the 1980s. So thank well, you. I just want to say that every product I use, that's a TSR product or whatever in my gaming yep. is 1985 and older. Yeah. I don't use any newer. Okay. <laughs> no second edition, no Jeff Grubb, no other people's. I just stayed to the to the Greyhawk fantasy theme, and then and I, because as someone who can create, there's actually no all I have to do is read a good series. Okay, <laughs> okay. so Ernie Gygax isn't using any D and D material post 1985, folks. That tells you everything you need to know about 1980s pop culture. Thank you, thank you again, Ernie. Thank you so much. All right, gentlemen. So thank you, Will, for reaching out. Ernie said it. He only uses, it seems like, TSR materials and nothing post-1985. That's hardcore. He, yeah, he's still playing AD&D, yeah. I mean, even you have used more modern things than that. Only because I was forced to change. <laughs> oh, oh, I know what you're referring to. Well, wait a second. Before you met me, you were already forced to do 3-5. Yes. Okay. All right, so in my defense. Okay. Um. So we have the legendary Ernie Gary Gygax Jr. saying that anything after 1985 in the Dungeons and Dragons world is crap. All right, Ernie, those were my words. You didn't say that. You didn't say it strongly. You're a gentleman. <laughs> You're a gentleman, but but yeah, 
Have we proven anything? You're goddamn right we did. I'm always stunned. We have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. That? Sure. Okay. That the Dungeons and Dragons experience in the 1980s is far superior Uh to any other decade's experience. That's right. (laughs) Everybody can suck it. Hey, we will talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya. See ya.